Hello, my name is Paul McCartney. This is Ringo Starr. This is John Lennon. I'm George Harrison. What I want, you've got it might be hard to handle. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. I'm so happy to be able to introduce our guest today, who is actually someone that really needs no introduction at all. A legend in music history, John Oates is one half of the duo Daryl Hall and John Oates, or as many know them, Hall and Oates. Daryl and John, to this day, remain the most successful songwriting duo of all time, ahead of the Carpenters, ahead of the Everly Brothers, and ahead of Simon and Garfunkel. Apart from being Hall and Oates' guitarist, John Oates co-wrote many of the top songs that they recorded, such as Sarah's Smile, She's Gone, Out of Touch, You Make My Dreams, I Can't Go For That, Man Eater, and Adult Education. John was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2004, and then inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014 as a member of Hall and Oates. And aside from the Beatles, Hall and Oates are one of my absolute favorite music groups of all time, so it's a real honor for me to introduce John Oates onto the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast to discuss his music, the Beatles, and everything in between. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? Pretty well, thanks. I've been um, doing a lot of Zooms today. It's a, We had a huge thunderstorm, and uh, so kind of catching up on my internet, uh, internet responsibilities. Oh, very nice. <laughs> so, John, thank you again for coming on the podcast. I'd like to start off the episode by asking you, as a legend in music history yourself, what was it that first inspired you to become a musician? Well, I've been, uh, you know, I, I had musical talent um, from the time I was a little, little kid. My parents recognized it and they always uh, supported me. So, I mean, I began taking uh, singing lessons at five and guitar lessons at six. So I've been playing for a long, long time. Um, and actually, you know, and I, I say this a lot, but I'm actually old enough to remember music before rock and roll. Um, because my parents were from the World War II generation, so they listened to big band music, swing, which was the music of their youth. And, uh, of course, as a little kid, that's the music that was playing in the house, and that's the music I heard. And, of course, when rock and roll began in the early 50s, I was just old enough to realize that something new had happened, um, that there was this new you know, thing that, that was going on called rock and roll. Um, you know, I... Uh, Seems kind of crazy to talk about it that way, but it's the truth. So, in a sense, my musical life has uh, you know, paralleled the uh, the arc of the development of rock and roll. So, for you as a young kid, what was it like for you when rock first came along? Was it like an immediate revelation, or did it take a little bit to process all of that? No, no, it was definitely a revelation. You know, I was always, so, you know, say, let's talk about the early 50s, because that's when it kind of started. There was a radio station in Philadelphia where I grew up in a little town outside of Philadelphia. There was a radio station that made a big deal out of the fact that they were going to play rock and roll music. That was like they 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 made this big announcement. They were going to uh, their entire format was going to become rock and roll. 
And so I remember my next door neighbor was a teenage, a teenager, and he had a car. Um, he used to wash his car in the driveway, and um, he, while he was washing his car, he'd have the radio on. And I start, and I used to hear, you know, the songs that were being played on this new radio station. And it was, you know, it was Chuck Berry and Fats Domino and Elvis and uh, the Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly and, you know, the early, early architects of rock and roll, you know, Little Richard. Um, and so that was the music I heard first. And I was like, yeah, this is great, you know. Um, and um, being a young kid, just learning to play the guitar, of course. You know, I wanted to like learn those songs, and so I did. I tried. You know, of course, I was really young, but you know, I did. Um, and uh, luckily, those early rock songs are pretty simple. Yeah. So that's, that was always always a positive. That is awesome. And so, what was it like when the Beatles came along? Did they convey that same spirit of rock and roll that you were hearing, or did they seem a little different to you? They were very different. You know, so I'm, you're probably not going to like to hear what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I think you're talking about 64 or 65. Uh, I can't remember when the Beatles' first single came out. You would know. In a yeah, they came in 64. Yeah. Well, you know, by that time, you know, I was in um, I was in 10th grade. You know, I was already playing in bands. I was uh, doing horn arrangements. I was much more of a mature musician uh, at that point. Um, and when I first heard the Beatles, I didn't get it. I, I thought... They sound like a garage band. They sound like a bunch of kids playing in a garage. Um, I was already playing really sophisticated, much more sophisticated music with different types of chord changes and stuff like that. Much, you know, and I was like, I don't, what's the fuss about these guys? They just sound like they're banging on their guitars. Little did I know, you know, of course, that was a very ignorant and naive uh, take on it. Um, but, but, you know, but now that I, you know, in, in retrospect, they were basically listening to the same music I was listening to. They were a little bit older than me, but not much. So um, they they were listening to Chuck Berry and Little Richard and the Everly Brothers, you know, when they were growing up. So they were doing their interpretation, their British interpretation of that music. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I want to hold your hand, you know, a little bit like uh, in, in a sense, it's kind of like Paul McCartney trying to do Little Richard, you know what I mean? Um, so I didn't really appreciate it as much. And here's a really interesting fact that I think a lot of people don't know about. In Philadelphia, you know, the the, the thing about Philadelphia was all about teenage dancing. And band, American Bandstand was a big deal in Philadelphia. In fact, American Bandstand kind of set the standard for how teenagers dressed, how they danced, you know, because... It was an, it went across the whole country, so, but the kids who were dancing on the American Bandstand were the kids who lived in Philadelphia, right near the radio, the television station. So that's how they. In fact, as crazy as this sounds, I'm going to get to a point, a Beatles reference eventually. Yeah, of course. Um, the kids who were on American Bandstand were the kids whose high school was the closest to the TV station. So that as soon as school went out, they ran to the TV station, got in line, and they got on TV. So every every week when you or every day when you saw American Bandstand, they were the same kids. And so those kids, the way they dressed, the way they danced was like what other teenagers around America saw and what they thought, because there was no Internet. There was no 
standard for, you know, teenagers like in Iowa or Minnesota or South Dakota, you know, they didn't know anything. So they saw the kids in Philadelphia. So when the, when the Beatles came out, it wasn't really music you could dance to. Those songs were not very danceable at first. And so there was this weird, weird reaction in Philadelphia where some radio stations actually said they wouldn't play the Beatles because you can't dance to it. Wow. As, I know it seems insane. It's stupid. But but seriously, Philadelphia was Philadelphia. Well, if you know anything, where do you live? I, I live in New York. OK, well, Philadelphia is the, is the biggest small town in the, in, in the world. So, you know, I mean, just so you know, people from Philadelphia don't even think about going to New York. It's only an hour and a half down the turnpike. But, <laughs> you know, it's Philadelphia's yeah. Philadelphia. They, they live in their own, you know, little bubble. Um, <laughs> but seriously, they, they really had this giant anti-Beatle reaction. And um, that only that didn't last very long, of course. You know, and as the Beatles evolved quickly and as soon as they started doing stuff like Norwegian Wood and things like that, I began to listen in a different way. I began, oh, wait a minute. These guys are really doing something here. This is a whole different approach. And of course, you know, then when they, you know, the thing that really changed me for the Beatles was Abbey Road. Um, when I heard how adventurous and how complicated and how cutting edge their record production was, because I, I was already making records at the same time. I started, I made my first record in 1966. So when I heard Abbey Road, I thought, oh, well, these guys are, there's a whole new level of record production that they were doing with George Martin and at the Abbey Road studios. And, you know, the experimental stuff they were doing with tape machines and all the really unique um, techniques that they were developing that no one had ever done before. And that's when it really, that's when I really started paying attention. And I said, wow, this is, these guys are on a whole other level. And so, uh, you know, and then from then on, you know, I had a, I had a completely different perspective and a different appreciation for what they did. Wow. So would you say that like the Beatles production on those records, like Abbey Road inspired you and Daryl Hall while you guys were trying to find your sound? Not really. No, we were coming from a completely different place. We were coming from more of an R and B, uh, kind of place. Um, the thing of those in terms of record production, yes, we realized that they had set a bar that was very, very high in terms of uh, what you could do in a recording studio. And that was influential, without a doubt. You know, uh, just like the beat and the Beatles will freely admit that, you know, they heard uh, they heard pet sounds that, that Brian Wilson was doing uh, in the Beach Boys. And that kind of inspired them uh, for, you know, for uh, Sergeant Pepper. Uh, they felt they wanted to do something more adventurous musically uh, and they did their own, you know, and, and, you know, even the Rolling Stones will say the same thing. They heard Sergeant Pepper and they wanted to do, you know, uh, their majesty's, uh, their majesty's request. So, you know, but, but that's how, that's how music works. Um, you know, that's how creative people do. They hear something that inspires them or, you know, something clicks and they go, wow, this is amazing. I, you know, I want to do my version of this or, this is what's going on in the world. It's a, you know, it's an organic creative process that people feed off of one another. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the Beatles set a standard that, that you know, that every record producer, every every person that walked in the studio after Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road, and people were saying, well, you know, these guys have put, you know, they put the bar way up here. And now, you know, we, you know, we have to do our, you know, we have to try to, you know, reach that. Very few do, but of course, but. 
You mentioned creative processes, and I'd, I'd really like to ask you about yours. When your career first started to skyrocket, what was it like then, from that moment on, trying to balance authenticity with experimentation in that creative process during those first moments? Well, Hall & Oates had a very different you know, uh, career trajectory. Um, we were fortunate enough to sign with a label in the early 70s that actually believed in us in terms of long longevity and believed that, believed that we could be artists who could develop and evolve. Um, the, the concept of a one-hit wonder was not really part of the deal back in those days. You know, if you got a record deal, you got a record deal based on the fact that the record company actually believed you had something to offer and that you might be able to, to uh, you know, to have a long career. They looked at the long term. So we were very fortunate in that because we, we did three albums before we had any success. Um, we had a, a little bit of success with She's Gone on the second album, but it really wasn't a hit. And then it wasn't until our fourth album, uh, 1970, late 74, 75, uh, where we had a hit with Sarah Smile. And then, of course, we had Rich Girl. And, we, and then She's Gone was re-released, and that became a hit. So it took us five year, four, four or five years before we even had our first hit. And then throughout the 70s, it was really um, the whole decade of the 70s was trying to trying to create a sound, trying to develop a band, trying to develop a live show, trying to get better at what we did, trying to um, spread the word, tour around the world. And that lasted really for 10 years. And then it wasn't until the 1980s when we decided to produce ourselves. We had been using other producers prior to that. Uh, we decided to produce ourselves and we decided that we needed a band that was that we could play live with, but also take into the studio. And that was the 80s band. And then that, you know, and then, of course, we wrote, wrote some pretty decent songs. So um, those, you know, those songs and that 80s band and producing ourselves, getting it just the way we wanted. That was what happened in the 80s. And that's that's when we had the mega success. And looking back now, do you have a favorite song that you've written one that brings back really fond memories when you listen to it or perform it? Um, there's a bunch. <laughs> We're pretty lucky. Yeah. Um, She's Gone, the early song, because that's the song that kind of put us on the map. And I, you know, I, I always think, I call that song, it's a creative, perfect storm. You know, uh, we wrote a great song. We were in the, the classic Atlantic recording studios with the, one of the best producers in the world, Arif Martin. Uh, who surrounded us with the greatest studio musicians in New York at the time. And he wrote an incredible string arrangement. Um, the production was pristine. So it was just one of those things where everything came together. The song, the players, the studio, the, the personnel. Uh, so that song really just always to me. And I play it every night, you know, whether we, you know, whether it's a Hall & Oates show or I play solo show, I always play that song. And um, it's like a song that sounds like it was written yesterday, you know. I have to tell you, Abandoned Luncheonette is in my top 10 albums of all time. Like every single song on there is well, so I, good. Thank you. I, I agree. <laughs> my favorite album too. But you're right. I mean, these songs still sound so contemporary. It's like, it's insane. What's the secret to making timeless music? <laughs> if I could bottle it, I would sell it. Trust me. Um, <laughs> you can't. I, there's no, there's no telling, you know, how it happens. Um, I think, you know, initially when a song connects with people, uh, you know, when you have a hit, so to speak, um, it's because there's something, something about that music or that song, whether it be the lyrics, the melody, the vibe, the groove, 
the sensibility, seems to connect with the, the moment, connect with how people are thinking at that moment, how people are feeling at that moment, what's going on in the world at that moment. When all those things come together, that's what makes a hit. Because Lord knows there's been a lot of amazing songs that never really became hits. Um, so yeah, it's it's an indefinable quality that uh, really I don't think you can do, you can really describe. Mm. Now, in the 1970s, you became very good friends with George Harrison. Can you tell me about that? What was it like to be friends with George? Yeah, I um I met uh, I I'm a I'm a motor racing fan, and I always have been involved in race cars and things like that ever since I've been a kid. Um, through some mutual friends, I started driving race cars in the seventies and, um, in, in, I met through a friend in England and through, through him, I met, uh, the Stewart family, Jackie, Sir Jackie Stewart. Uh, of course he wasn't Sir then, but, um, and his family. And then, um, G uh, George was a really good, they were, uh, George was a very good friend of, of Jackie Stewart as well. And, uh, at the Long Beach Grand Prix in LA, when I was out there, I went to the race uh, and uh, hung out with George. That's where I met him for the first time. And um, you probably know that George has a song called Faster. Oh, yeah. That he, that he actually wrote about Jackie Stewart. Um, there's a picture of me and George. I have the picture. Um, I could send it to you if you want. Um, it's a picture of George and I on the track at the Long Beach Grand Prix. And if you look very closely, George has this little miniature tape recorder. And he's holding this little mic as the cars went by. And that's the sound that you hear in the beginning of the song, Faster. Wow. And I was, I was standing with George when he was recording all that. And he told me he had this idea for a song and he wanted to get the sound of the cars. Um, so I'll send you the picture, it's a cool picture. Yeah, and then, um, you know, so we bonded really over the, over the car thing. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, he invited me uh, to his house at Friar Park in England. And that was an amazing experience just to see that incredible, weird, eclectic house that he had. And, um, you know, it was funny. We didn't really do any music. Um, he wanted to show me the garden. He was really proud of the garden. I don't know if you know about it, but. Oh his, yeah. Yeah. His garden. Yeah. You're a real beetle fanatic. Okay. Yeah, his garden <laughs> had all these like miniature Matterhorn and miniature uh, Grotto Azura, blue Grotto from Italy. And it were all these like, you know, it was just, it was just over the top fabulous. And um, so that was cool. And then when we were back in LA, George uh, was there and I asked him if he wanted to play on our album, uh, which was an album we did called Along the Red Ledge. And uh, we had some really great people, uh, guests on that album. And um, George said, yeah, yeah, I want to do it. And he said, uh, he said, I just I just want to be in the band. He goes, I don't want any special treatment. I just want to be in the band. So, OK, yeah, great. So, you know, he came and he played acoustic guitar. He didn't do anything special. He didn't want to. You know, I, I didn't want to push him, you know, and say, oh, come on, man, you got to do. He's, he just wanted to play and be in the in the band, which was really cool. Um, and that's how he was. He was very down to earth. He was very. Uh, you know, he's, he, you know, he's quiet, but funny and, uh, you know, just a great, great person. And then he, he we had a really fun time. He invited Daryl and, and I over to his house to preview the Ruddles movie that he produced. Um, 
And it was really funny because throughout the whole movie, he kept talking about, he would point out all these little subtle little things. And, oh yeah, look, that's what they're doing. They're trying to, you know, they're, 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 um, you know, they're goofing on me and John when we did this and that, you know, so which is really cool. Um, yeah. And he was just, uh, he was a really amazing person and uh, yeah, very, um, very tragic loss. John, when you look back on legacies such as your own and the Beatles, what do you think allows bands like the Beatles and Hollow Notes to stand out in history when they're compared to every other band? I, I, I think it's the songs. It's all about the songs. You know, um, there's a million great singers. I mean, look, you know, Turn On America's Got Talent or The Voice or whatever. There's a million great singers. They're so good. But do they have a song to sing, really? Without a song to sing... There's a million great guitar players, there's a million great drummers and bass players and blah, 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 bands. It's all about the songs. Um, and uh, that's what sets that's what sets groups and artists apart from from the others. Uh, if their songs you know, can um, resonate and can stand the test of time. Yep. Oh, oh, I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, I'm just curious. Do you happen to have a favorite Beatles song or record? I, I like I said. I mean, I, I I have huge appreciation for what they did with Sergeant Pepper and Abbey Road, um, but I I like Norwegian Wood. There's something about that record that's really unique. Um, it's got a the sound of it. It's almost folky in a way. Um, you know, it's it's kind of it was like to me. It was like they were dipping their toes in in the future and where they could go. They weren't quite there yet, but they were like, oh, wait a minute, we can do something, you know, it's not, I want, I, we don't have to do I want to hold your hand anymore. You know, we're going to do something else. And um, that's what I like about it. Mm. And how do you see the state of music now? Are you happy where popular music is today? Well, I think there's a lot of great pop songs being made. Um, there's, without a doubt, I'm, I'm very much, uh, I'm very much into roots music, um, the Americana music scene. That's my, it's kind of my niche. Um, I like uh, blues and, uh, and uh, root, you know, real R&B roots music uh, and folk, folky stuff. And that's kind of what I do on my own solo wise. Um, I just want it to be real. Um, I like organic playing. I like real playing with real players in the studio. I uh, don't, I don't, I use a little bit of the modern technology when necessary, but I just like the, I like the feeling of great players sitting in a circle, looking at each other and playing. And speaking of new music, I believe that you have some new music coming out. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And if you're working on any current projects? Yeah, I started last November with a series of digital singles that I, that I released once a month, uh, starting in November. And I'm on the what, sixth one now. Um, the la the late the latest one is called "Too Late to Break Your Fall," which actually comes out this week. Um, but last uh, last month, I put out a, a reggae version of Maneater, which I recorded in Kingston, Jamaica, with the legends of reggae, the guys who played with Bob Marley, Toots and the Maytals, and Peter Tosh, people like that. Uh, I have a Jamaican friend who's a producer, and uh, he organized the recording session in Kingston, and I went down there and. Uh, when I got the original idea for Maneater, um, before Daryl and I collaborated on it, my original idea was that it was a reggae song. So over the years, I've always wanted to take it back. So I did the I did a reggae version of Maneater, which which I did. And there's a, a really cool mini documentary on the making of that on YouTube now. Um, 
but I've you know I've done a bunch of new originals. One called Disconnected. One called Pushing a Rock. Uh, I did an anti-war song called uh, Why Can't We Live Together, which was a cover of Timmy Thomas's song that he recorded in '71. So yeah, I've got just and I'm probably just going to keep releasing digital singles and uh, you know um, and I'm playing I'm playing live a lot, doing a lot of solo acoustic shows. So exciting. And John, I'm going to leave all of the links to those projects that you were talking about in the podcast description. So anyone listening can go click on those at any moment. And John, if people want to know more about these projects or if they want to stay up to date with your releases or announcements, where can they find you at? Um, JohnOates.com. I'm on Instagram, uh, uh, JohnOatesOfficial. And I'm always doing weird stuff like driving around in old cars and, you know, riding my bike and, <laughs> so, you know, all kinds of lifestyle stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, covering a lot of the solo shows, I'm doing a, a series of acoustic shows called An Evening of Songs and Stories. And I go out there with an acoustic guitar and I have a friend who's a percussionist who plays with me. Um, and uh, we're doing some really cool shows around. Uh we're not coming to New York, right? Uh, playing in Connecticut, doing the Newport Folk Festival in July. So there's a, there's a bunch of cool stuff happening. Awesome. I can't wait. And again, all of the links will be in the podcast description. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling those awesome stories. Nice talking to you, man. I'll talk to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. Thank you to John Oates for coming on the show and making this episode one to remember. I also want to thank my friend Kevin and his mom for bringing me and my brother to a Holland Oates concert eight years ago, where this whole journey started, and my dad for showing me the awesomeness of Abandoned Luncheonette. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe so you can hear more like it in the future. And as always... I'll see you next week with a new episode.